Welcome to the Extra Environmentalist. Your opposable thumb means nothing. This is what we want to be. We don't want to be Americans or Germans or English. We want to be extra environmentalists. Always feel, wherever you go, that you are a stranger. The outsider. The one looking in. This is the viewpoint that makes all places the same to you. Hello and welcome to The Extra Environmentalist. I'm Seth Moserkatz, along with my co-host, Justin Ritchie. Hey Seth, how are you doing today? Justin, I am doing just great. We are having another beautifully rainy, cold day in North Carolina. The sun is not shining and the clouds are covering the sky. A lot like Vancouver is, probably. That's basically what the weather is is like all the time here in Vancouver. But unlike maybe your general conversation on the street, we aren't here to talk about the weather. We're here to talk about a lot of things. And one of those is you started a new job this week, Seth. So that's exciting. I did. I started a new job. And I just spent a week in orientation. And I know that orientation is not the most exciting thing, but it is the beginning of something and what it will be the beginning of is a new job and you probably got to watch a lot of really cool training videos not as many as you would think i mostly listened to people talk many of those people were not the most exciting but some of them were cool well at least there were some exciting pieces here in vancouver um this last week we had a talk given by Dave Montgomery from the University of Washington. He wrote a book called Dirt, The Erosion of Civilizations, and he came up here to talk about topsoil loss and how that's contributed to the historical decline and collapse of civilizations. So, you know, normal stuff. Yeah, just your normal everyday topics that most people talk about in Vancouver. Speaking of death spirals of civilization, who did we talk to this week, Justin, that brought up that amazing phrase? We talked civilizational death spirals with Jack Alpert of the Stanford Knowledge Integration Lab, and he has been studying the ways in which humans interpret knowledge from the environment and the way that we integrate that knowledge into our individual behavior choices and expectations about the present and the future. And so he has a lot of interesting points to share with us today. And so we're going to dig into those and talk to him about his knowledge in those areas and also talk to him about some of his thoughts about where we're headed and how we can possibly avoid a lot of human suffering along the way. You know, the usual optimistic, cheery topics. Oh yeah, and we're also talking about extreme population decline from 7 billion people to Jack's target number of 50 million people. Well, I, I wouldn't say 50 million, maybe 100. <laughs> There's no point picking a number, really. You can just, you can pick a number for anything. It more has to do with what level of overshoot we're in and all of these variables yeah so no need to pick a number right no need to pick a number but extreme population decline nonetheless yeah that's essentially what we get into towards the end of the interview so don't let that scare you away because there's a lot of interesting discussion on the way we learn and the way we process information and i think it's easy to think about overpopulation talking about reducing populations and and get a little intimidated and feel a little uncomfortable quite frankly that's why a lot of people don't talk about it what we have today is uh, jack who really lays out a, a very logical and rational case for why 
we got into this mess and why rapid population decline that he's talking about is is a way out of it. So uh, hopefully you can listen with an open mind, see where it goes from there. The Extra Environmentalist is not for the squeamish of heart. We talk to people that have all kinds of ideas, and some of these ideas are controversial. Absolutely, and I, I would say this is definitely a controversial idea. That's what we're all about. We're, we're about taking those controversial ideas about humanity and putting them out there into the public mind. Enjoy. You are listening to The Extra Environmentalist. Today we are interviewing Jack Alpert from the Stanford Knowledge Integration Lab. Jack Alpert, you direct the Stanford Knowledge Integration Lab, which you started at Stanford University in 1978. And after you left Stanford, after a stint in Silicon Valley, where you helped to start up Cisco Systems, the internet routing company, you incorporated the lab in 1992 into an independent nonprofit educational research foundation, which you had from Kansas. And the goal of the lab is to help people understand the human predicament and change their behavior to address it. Perhaps you can start off by telling us what is the Stanford Knowledge Integration Lab, and how did you transition from getting an engineering education in your bachelor's, in your master's, and then going into a PhD in education? What, what inspired you to do that? I was a mechanical engineer, and I designed a front end for a car as a senior thesis at the University of Wisconsin. And when I went to General Motors, I brought my thesis with me, and they said, uh, you see the first sentence of your thesis? It says here, if we design the front end correctly, then we can uh, prevent people from being injured in car accidents. And they said, well, uh, there's an assumption, and the assumption is that we can attach people to the car and then get the car to slow down at the right rate. The car slows down at the right rate already. We just can't attach people to cars. And so I immediately switched from mechanical engineering to biomechanics, and I ended up at the Safety Research and Development Lab, which was the house that Nader built he encouraged General Motors to get into auto safety research, and I was one of the first engineers to get the benefits of his effort. At the lab, I worked on seatbelts and airbags and instrument panels and steering columns. In 1968, we had such good equipment, and General Motors put so much money into the learning process, uh, we made phenomenal progress. And the progress was that one out of every 200 Americans was dying in their car because in an accident, they were like eggs inside a crate, and they were being thrown around and broken. That, that's a tremendous number, one out of 200. One out of, yeah, right. And, and, and people who were seriously injured and went to the hospital because of car accidents was eight times higher. Everybody knew somebody who died in a car accident it was just sort of like uh, one of the hazards of living. If you drove and you were in cars, lots of people that your friends, one out of every 200 of your friends is going to die in a car accident. One out of every 25 was in the hospital, had been injured with you know, scars and plaster of Paris. So when we put seatbelts in cars, the number dropped precipitously. I mean, for the same kind of accidents, instead of 1 in 200, it was like 1 in 26,000. Kept very good records, and we found out that almost nobody died in a car accident if you wore your seatbelts. So, you know, as a do-gooding engineer, I was really excited about what I had done and I had made this incredible progress in my first year out of college and I got into the right lab and we worked very hard and uh, we got seatbelts installed in cars and people wouldn't wear them. 
they just couldn't see the meaning of, of wearing a seatbelt. They said, hey, this is uncomfortable. It rubs on my neck. It wrinkles my clothes. I don't want to wear this thing. Uh, besides, I'm never going to be in an accident. It disturbed me enough to get out of engineering and start thinking about why people couldn't wear seatbelts. And the straw that broke the camel's back was that polio vaccines had about the same benefit. If you got vaccinated, you didn't get polio. And it was like a big step function. And then I found out that the same people who would get their kids vaccinated were the same people who wouldn't wear their seatbelt. And so there was a difference. There was a difference between the seatbelt problem benefit and the polio vaccination problem benefit. And one behavior got taken, the other behavior didn't. That forced me to quit engineering and go back to the University of Wisconsin. And actually, my master's in engineering was to teach people dynamic modeling, the back of the envelope kind, the kind that you use to understand the world, make decisions based on what's going to happen, not what is happening, which is a big difference. The courses were pretty good. Courses were for non-engineers. One of the most exciting final papers was a woman who uh, going to get married and go to medical school. Found out that 93% of all married medical students were divorced by the time they got through residency, which was five years later. It's a pretty simple system. This is, so this is a feedback, not nonlinearity. So this is simple feedback. Uh, so it was a simpler problem, but it's one that we don't deal with well. The woman said, if 93% of all married medical students are divorced, what happened? And the answer is that she says it's a simple system. His happiness is related to my happiness. And my happiness is related to his happiness. So if I'm nice to him, he's nice to me. And if he's nice to me, I'm nice to him. Everything goes along very well. In fact, gets better and better and better. Of course, if I'm not nice to him, then he's not nice to me. And then I'm not nice to him. And you have this feedback loop that sinks very rapidly. Now, what's so special about medical school is that medical students, in the process of learning medicine, go through this trial and failure uh, learning process. Their cadaver doesn't have a nerve in the right place, or if they, they're dissecting, they cut the nerve in half before they find it. They have a little child that they're trying to help but is going to die anyway, or they have a geriatric that can't hear and is miserable, and, but he's going to die anyway. And so these, she's constantly coming home completely battered from her day in the process of learning medicine. So she dumps that into the feedback loop. And of course, her husband feels that he didn't deserve this abuse. And so he dumps on her and then she dumps on him. And that's terrible. So she said, what are we going to do to prevent this from happening? In her paper, she said, this is what's going to happen. Every other week, we're going to take opposite behaviors. During my week, I'm going to come home from medical school. Even if I got completely trashed, I'm going to uh, be nice arbitrarily. And so he'll be nice to me and I'll be nice to him. And then our relationship will be okay. And the next week I get to bring it home and dump all over him, except even though I dump all over him, he's going to be nice to me. He arbitrarily is going to be nice to me, even though I dumped on him. So they've essentially broken the feedback loop. I don't know exactly what happened, whether or not she made it through residency, but the fact was she saw the problem before the fact. She understood how it worked and she decided on a set of behaviors that would result in her being able to give her relationship a chance. And without that kind of thinking and without that kind of forethought and behavior, her relationship was probably 93% of the time toast. To bring that back to the world's predicament, we have exactly a similar feedback loop 
Uh, it's called the scarcity conflict feedback loop. What happens in a society is, let's assume that you create a scarcity. There's a harvest failure or there's a decrease in the amount of fuel available or you got a bad government or there's a zillion reasons for, for creating a scarcity. But once you create a scarcity, then some people get disenfranchised and they don't, they don't get to eat or they get to eat less. And so they get angry and they create conflict. What happens when you have conflict in a social system? You have to allocate resources and the resources come from somewhere and they end up making more scarcity which makes more conflict, which makes more scarcity, which makes more conflict. And so the, the risk here is that if you don't understand what happens to your system when you have conflict, is that you get into a civilization death spiral, just like the two medical students got into a death spiral. And if they don't have a plan to keep from going into that death spiral, they will go down. Our particular case in our society uh, this is an upcoming video that the lecture that was given October 4th in D.C., but I presented a model that said, what causes civilization collapse? And the answer was, if you know your system contains a civilization death spiral feedback loop, then anything that creates scarcity will force your system into collapse. Okay, It doesn't make any difference if you have decreasing fossil fuels. It doesn't make any difference if you have rising population. It doesn't make any difference if you have rising per capita consumption. It doesn't make any difference if uh, you're just running a stratification model and the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. All of these things will trip this civilization conflict death spiral. Scarcity, conflict, scarcity, conflict, scarcity, conflict. And even if it was tripped by something like a... Uh, harvest failure, let's assume that next year there isn't a harvest failure. It's, it, it all works and everybody gets to eat or it all works and everybody, you have as much food as you had last, the, two years ago. Your system has already diverted the resources to do either new acquisition or defensive resources. And in that process, you created your own little piece of new scarcity independent of the harvest failure. So our system is now, our civilization is poised for a collapse based on scarcity conflict. And it's being driven by all the bad behaviors that everybody already knows about. Uh, less fossil fuel to work with, uh, soil depletion, soil desalination. Uh, climate change is a problem. I don't know if it's human driven or not, but the fact is that will probably happen after all these other things are happening. Certainly climate change has not tripped uh, Algeria, and it has not tripped uh, the Egyptian conflict and the Yemen disruption. All of those were handwriting on the wall, and we should have anticipated them. In, in every handbook of solutions, it says you, you can't push your system into overshoot. Uh, this is William Catton's argument. You can't push your system into overshoot. If you do, you're vulnerable to all kinds of things, one of them being the uh, scarcity conflict death spiral. It's something you haven't seen in any of the presentations, but it's coming out this year. We're in a much more difficult situation than we've ever been before as a human community. It would be very, very easy for a billion people to be pushed off the eating plate in the next 10 years. Let's take that Egyptian riot, for example. Mubarak has, he's collected, you know, mass amounts of dollars, billions and four, like $40 billion, and his people are you know rebelling in the street does that mean that 
his mass amassing of wealth is the wrong strategy. Let's assume that they get rid of Mubarak, they get a new government, and they completely recover the $40 billion or $4 billion, whatever the man has stashed away. Egypt has always had a pretty good educational system, and they've had kids can, can become engineers there. There's no problem. And there's no jobs. There's no way for that country with the number of people they have, which has doubled in the last 50 years, there's no way for that country to support all those people. They're in overshoot whether or not they had the good or bad management of uh, Mr. Mubarak. He's just a little speed bump. And if they fix that speed bump, they're left with all the momentum of their millions and millions of people that are too many for the Nile River Valley to support, too many for the small amount of fossil fuels they have in-house. The problem is, is that not only is Egypt in trouble but with too many people for the available resources, there isn't a space on Earth that's not in trouble. And the reason is that we're all sharing the same market. There's only 87 million barrels a day of oil that are, that are being produced. It's relatively constant. The last five years, we have not increased it. I just came back from uh, the Association for the Study of Peak Oil and the chairman of the Petroleum Engineering Department at the University of Texas, which you got to believe is probably the best funded petroleum engineering department, he said, look, uh, my team at the University of Texas has figured out ways of getting wells that are on their last leg, declining in their production, and we go in and we get more oil out of those wells than anybody ever thought. And we've been doing a phenomenal job of it. And so while we've done this, it isn't reflected in the 87 uh, million barrels a day. I mean, we did all this extra new science and there's enough wells that are not producing that it isn't keeping up with, I mean, our advances aren't, aren't increasing the amount of supply. So what does this mean? If there's only 87 million barrels a day, it means that the haves of the world, and it doesn't make any difference if you're an Indian have, a Chinese have, or an American have, if you go to McDonald's and eat a burger, or if you uh, put gas in your tank, you will successfully get your share of the 87 billion barrels. But that means there's a whole bunch of people that used to use that f fuel, because uh, it was cheap, to pump water, to irrigate your small field, to feed your family, and to feed the neighbors. The users, just normal people like you and me who go to McDonald's and eat a burger and fill up their gas tank, can pay the extra costs of the fuel, then the farmer can't. And if he can't, then he doesn't eat. And all the, the 400 million people in India that are living on a dollar a day and, and the, the billion people in the world that are living on a dollar a day, we can take all the food out of their market very quickly. I mean, incredibly quickly. The old numbers of 20% of the, of the world's community is consuming 80% of the world's resources. If you run that, you realize that 80% of the world is consuming 20% of the resources. Well, let's, let's take this 87 billion barrels. 80% um, of the 80 billion barrels are being used by the halves of the world. And 20% are being used by the poor people at, at the most minimal levels. Okay. The halves of this world think that they want to increase their consumption at 3% a year. I mean, the federal government didn't make any difference if McCain or Obama 
is in the White House. Uh, his responsibility is to create jobs for the American public and to keep the American economy going. And 3% is not an ugly number. It's an expected number. But if there's only 87 billion barrels a day and we want to get, we want to increase our share of that by 3% a year, think about how long it will take to get the 20% that the poor people are now using. Okay. Look at the 80%. You say it's going to increase at 3% a year. It only takes eight years to take every barrel of oil that the other 80% are consuming and, you know, the richest 20% uses them and the, and the poorest 80% have nothing. And it doesn't make a difference if it's oil or soybeans or palm oil or corn. And wheat's another one. The wheat harvests have not increased over the last few years. But the population has, and the consumption of the rich have, and the diversion of grain harvests like corn to ethanol have. There's no reason for us to believe that about a billion people in the next 10 years won't be able to afford to eat. And that's no conflict. That's no Mubarak. Uh, that's just normal people like you and me with our money invested in Wall Street trying to get 3% a year out of it. In fact, we all hope that we're going to get a lot more. This is Alex Jones, and you're listening to The Extra Environmentalist. So the issue is we've been living and working with an economic system that's been specifically designed to promote this accumulation of wealth, which has accelerated the stratification of these social structures and has increased scarcity. It seems like over the last you know, few decades, the developing world has been sold this notion of globalization that all of this capital from these developed nations can flow down and you know, reach out into these countries and they can gain a piece of all the wonderful things they see on television and all these wonderful consumer goods. The question is, most people are now starting to understand that system isn't distributing the wealth. It's only leading towards further... Uh, separation between the upper classes and the, and the lower classes. So how do you see people starting to look at that and interpret that and understand what that means in their own lives? I don't think people are. And I don't think, I mean, my basic research and learning theory says like, they certainly can't understand it because they've never experienced it before. And their culture doesn't accommodate it. I mean, yeah, there's socialism and yes, there's communism and yes, there's putting caps on individuals' consumption and spreading out whatever is produced over many, many people. But if the system's in overshoot, then none of those corrections resolve any problem. Recently, I, I created a short movie, and you can see it at my website, uh, skill.org, where I showed that the system is probably in overshoot by a factor of 100, that there's probably only room on the planet living the way most parents want their children to live for less than 100 million people, probably close, closer to 50 million people. That's just the population in South Korea. That's all the people that can, can exist on the whole earth. And if I'm even remotely correct, I could be off by a factor of uh, 
50%, 100%, 200%, that's still only much less than a billion. And we already are have a 7 billion. Most of the 7 billion people can't survive in the future given the resources that we have. We don't have the soil to support them. We don't have the water to support them. And we certainly are not going to have petroleum to support them. The only way we can actually support the uh, 7 billion that are already here is that we are converting petroleum into food. There's 10 calories of fossil fuels going into every calorie of food being produced. And as soon as that petroleum's not there, we can't produce all this food. We can't really have 7 billion people. Not only do we, can we not do the addition and subtraction to understand what it means, we can't, the nonlinear part is that people won't understand how fast all of what they thought was working so well is going to go upside down and not work at all. That's really the, the interesting point here because it's the way our cognitive systems work which prevent us from understanding that. So what is it about the way we're educated in the classroom that prevents us from understanding how this nonlinearity would play out? You're getting down into the details, but let me th- think of, of a way to explain it simply. Uh, let's consider that there's a relationship. Action A causes result B. Not too complicated. And let's assume there are three ways to learn how action A causes B. The first one is you imagine the action, you perform it in the world, and then you watch to see what changes. And whatever happened in the world that changed, you say that's the B. And you connect A causes B. Okay, It's called experiential learning. And that's what we're really good at. Now, the second way of learning is somebody else tried the A, saw the B, made the connection, wrote it down in a book or taught in a class that you were sitting in or a book that you read, A causes B. And so you can get A causes B from transmission. It's part of your culture and you can learn it and you don't have to experience it. The third way of of getting A causes B, which is the most important way, which is the way that we're not using, is you imagine an action in your head, but something else is in your head a little model of the physical world, a causal model, a bunch of gears and clocks and things that are, that are running. And you take A, which is an, this mental object, and you throw it into your mental model of the world, and you turn the crank, and you push it forward, and you get an outcome, and it's B. So the third way of getting uh, A causes B is by inference, meaning you can in- for a condition that has never occurred in the past and nobody coached you about it. Well, it turns out that we're very good at A in some domains. I mean, we're, we're very good at the first way, experience in some domains. Some people are very good at learning by transmission, but most of us are pretty much crippled in the field of inference. We don't do it very well. Some logicians can do uh, what we call logical inference, which means they manipulate symbols to find out a condition in the future that has not existed in the past. But the most important one is causal. Causal inference means that uh, you predict that you're going to run out of gas in the middle of a desert because you saw a sign at the edge that said no gas for 800 miles. And you look down at your gas tank gauge and it says there's 400 miles of gas left in it. It's full. 
And then you say, hmm, I'm going to be able to drive 400 miles before the tank's empty. And uh, there's deserts 800 miles wide. That means I'm going to be in the middle of the desert and I'm going to be out of gas. That's a causal inference. Well, it, the third kind of inference requires that you have all this little mental model of uh, your car burning gas and how much gas is there and how long, how many miles you can go before the gas tank's empty. That's pretty simple. But when you're talking about civilizations, it too has got all kinds of sinks where you put things like CO2 and sources like fossil fuel where you get things to run with and ways of uh, turning fossil fuel into carbon dioxide and get some energy out at which lights your house and heats your home and drives your car and produces your food and delivers it to your grocery store. This inference model where we're very weak at. Now, the question that you asked is why are we weak at inference? And I'll tell you. The world's robust enough for you to learn how to make those work, even if you didn't know them. When you're a small child and you want to learn to play catch, take the ball from your parent and you throw it randomly. You don't even look where it goes. There's no experiential learning until you put a bunch of buckets together. One bucket says, I'll remember the throw. The next bucket is, I have a destination where I want the ball to go. Uh, another bucket that says this is where the ball actually fell to the right, to the left, or short of where I wanted it to go. And then you had to have a little function that said, I'm going to take the difference between where the ball fell and where I wanted it to go, and I'm going to modify the throw. Now I can improve the throw. What happened was you made enough failures as a small infant to build all these buckets, which allowed you to learn by experience. The second, I realize it's getting a little deep. Going deep yeah. is fine because this, I really feel, is the core of why people don't understand the ecological problems that the world's currently facing. So absolutely continue keep, on in detail. Keep keep, keep going. Yeah. All right. Well, the second one is ex is using transmission. And in transmission, these sounds are coming through and they're being converted into words and the words are being converted into subjects and objects and verbs. And as the sentence goes by, you have a bucket for the A and you put it in there and then you listen for the verb and you put that in the causal bucket and then you get the outcome and you put that in the third bucket and now you can take the three buckets and create A causes B. And so the question is, where did the buckets come from? And there are people like Chomsky that say some of this is innate. And then there are some people like Jack Alpert that says, no, I think, I think some of these buckets and the shape and how they're designed and what they capture is actually an experiential process. And you capture the wrong stuff for a while and you, and you don't get the right causality. And eventually you learn how to listen for the right pieces and put them in the right places and then extract out the causality. And I'm saying the world is robust enough so that you can learn by experience and you can learn by transmission over time because you can, you're allowed to make the mistakes so that the buckets get better and better at what they're doing. Okay, now let's go on to this third one, the inference machine, where you build a little machine in your head, you put an, an action into it. Let's assume that the machine produces the wrong result. The machine predicts that A causes C. Now, let's go back to a classroom and see what happens. You're in a classroom. There's three of you sitting there, and the teacher asks the first student, you, you're supposed to read the assignment from the night before. He, he asks you, what does A imply? And if you read the assignment from the night before, you would know for sure that A causes 
be, but you do read the assignment. And so now you have to do it by inference. So you, you run your little model, you stick the A into your little model in your head, and out pops C. Okay, so now you've made an incorrect prediction using your inference engine, using the buckets that were created by uh, your trial and error learning of inference. And what happens is, because you predicted C, the teacher immediately asks the child next to you, what does A imply? That child read the book. They say B, at which point, what's the job of the first student? He's supposed to overwrite his incorrect A causes C answer, A causes B. You have to ask the question, when does he go back and figure out why his inference model predicted C instead of B? And the answer is, he never gets to do it. And therefore, his inference capabilities are never developed. And our entire educational process, I mean, parents, when they're working with their infant babies, are trying desperately to teach them all the A causes Bs they can possibly stuff into that small child's brain. They never let the child make his own inferences, especially errors in inference that he can prove are wrong, and then go back and say, well, why did I predict the wrong one. And so most of my research has to do with the signal flow graphs that demonstrate what you can and can't learn in the field of temporal inference. The ability to look at your physical world and say, oh, it's going over here. I don't want it to go over there. That's not a good place. But because you don't have very good abilities to tell where your system's going, you're stuck. And what we're stuck doing is watching Fox News that has an expert that says A causes B, another causes D, and a third expert that says A causes E. But the person has no ability to tell which expert to believe. And so he's just, he's just muddling through. And the experts themselves, they know where they got the A causes B, but they are not sure that it's true. they just repeating what they learned or what their experiment demonstrated. And they can't tell you if their demonstration was the whole system or a very small fraction of the system or 50% of the system or all the parts of the system except the important part. And so when you listen to our government or you listen to Fox News or you listen to NPR and it's based on an expert presentation of what the expert knows, they're as blind as anyone. I can give you a little example of an experiment that I tried to run at Stanford in the early 70s or mid-70s. I tried to test people's ability to do temporal inference, and I wrote it for sixth graders, and the sixth graders were Palo Alto sixth graders. They were pretty smart to begin with. The problem that I gave the sixth graders was an island to manage over a period of years. They were given a bag of beans to start with and some animals to start with. The relationships between planting and harvest were known. The, the relations between feeding and reproduction were known, meaning uh, 500 beans uh, the animal lived. 501 beans, the animal reproduced, and 499 beans, the animal died. And you got points in this management problem for the number of animals that were alive at the end of the first year got one point, the animals that were alive at the end of the second year got two points, and so on. But you got 2,000 points off for any animal you killed. It was completely determinant so that you could figure out where you were going to at the end of the first year without actually planting the beans and feeding the animals. And then you could try the results of the first year and figure out where you were going to be at the end of the second year and so on. You could actually test your results. The, the exam was on a computer and the, the computer had a built-in calculator and you could make calculations to see how you were going to do long before it played itself out. Okay, the important part is 
the sixth graders mostly failed. I think there was one child that did not fail. But most of them, because as soon as they started killing animals and they killed too many, they were booted out of the management position. That's okay. That's not very surprising. It was, it's a little complicated problem, and you have to be disciplined about it. So I said I'd give it to a bunch of Stanford freshmen. And they got to be smarter than, Stan- than Palo Alto sixth graders. But the results showed that the Stanford freshmen were in no better shape that their temporal inference capabilities were same caliber. So then I said, okay, let's try Stanford faculty. You have to understand that there were a lot of sixth graders, a much smaller number of Stanford freshmen. When I finally got to the faculty, there weren't very many faculty that wanted to get involved in Jack's experiment that demonstrated that, you know, Stanford faculty were no brighter than Palo Alto sixth graders, but some took it and they didn't do very well. And the final round was, you know, there was the token uh, Nobel laureate and Wolf Prize winner, it was a very small sample, but and I don't want to say this experiment had uh, statistical validity. I'm just saying that the inference is that Nobel laureates, the brightest people we know, are in no better shape to do temporal inference than they were when they were in sixth grade. That essentially that capacity was never developed. Could have been developed, according to my research, uh, at least in theory, but it wasn't developed. Part of our the human predicament is that we don't recognize it as a predicament. We're all going to work every day and um, saving money for our kids' education and hoping they're going to be able to go to college and they're going to get good jobs and they're going to be able to buy a house in suburbia and things are all hunky-dory. The normal, educated human being on the face of the earth has no concept that the whole system is about to crash like a car accident. This is The Extra Environmentalist, and you're listening to our interview with Jack Albert of the Stanford Knowledge Integration Lab. So the point is that even going through educational systems, even going all the way up and winning a Nobel Prize or maybe gaining all the credentials needed to obtain political power in the society doesn't necessarily give you the ability to look at information and interpret it in a meaningful way. Exactly. Exactly. When we look at our federal government and it's trying to increase the GNP by a certain percentage every year to make way for new people to buy their homes and move their kids through college. This plan, given the fact that there's a very high probability that we are depleting our soil or we are uh, not going to have enough water or that the delivery of fossil fuels is going to decline rapidly, it means that they don't think that there's anything dangerous out there. It's like the guy driving his car. Uh, he doesn't think there's anything dangerous out there. My favorite example is you're in a snowstorm and you're driving to grandmother's for uh, Thanksgiving dinner. If you drive off the road and run into a post, you're all going to die. Of course, if you don't run off the road and you don't hit the post, then you're going to arrive at grandmother's. And so here this parent has got this dilemma. He's never run off the road before. He's always been able to drive in the snowstorm. He's never been in a serious accident. So if he uses his experience, he's going to say, what the heck, let's give it a shot. We'll try to get to grandmother's. There are a lot of posts out there. If there's a whole, there's a big pile up on the road here in Kansas City. We had we had uh, 172 cars pile into one another on a, on, a, on a whiteout. You know, they just were driving along, even if they were only driving at 40 miles an hour. They just one after another. They're piled into this collection of cars that were parked in the middle of the freeway, crashed into one another. 
you don't want to take the tongue lashing that, that your mother's going to give you for being late to her Thanksgiving dinner. And therefore, you're willing to take a much bigger risk than you should take. And that's what's going on right now. I see two problems in the, in the current society. The one is the education and the teaching of people to understand these concepts about understanding their weaknesses and inference. And the other one is to teach that to people as well, to teach people how to make these inferences. Because without the first part, without letting people know that they have that blind spot in their collective thought, in the societary collective thinking, in the political direction of many countries and in many civilizations, you can't have that second part. You can't have the teaching, the learning, the understanding how to make these kind of inferences. How do you tackle those two problems? They're, com they're completely separate. When I left General Motors and I went to Wisconsin, I realized in Wisconsin that teaching people dynamic systems modeling wasn't a complete solution. They could apply it in some places, but not in others. And so when I went to Stanford, I started working on the more, more fundamental problem. How does a person get the general case of that they live in a dynamic world. The research there, the, and when I say research, I'm saying a Gedunkin experiment is a thought experiment. I really had no subjects. I didn't work with infants. Okay, But I argued that here is the learning environment. Here is what the person brings to the learning environment. And out the other end is what I want them to have. And if, in theory, I couldn't get person A go through this learning process and come out with capacities B, I would just start with a different learning environment. And I kept changing it and changing it and changing it. I never got it to work. And what I did learn was that I had to go to a younger and younger and younger individual. And so in the end, I was proposing things like you have to get to a human mind between the ages of six days and six months. And you have to change their learning environment at that level. They can build the inference buckets that allow them to look, walk into a room and say, oh, nice room. Uh, the paint's fading. Seven years? You're going to have to repaint the walls. Are you putting away money to repaint the walls of this room? I mean, got a completely different model for what's going on. They're looking at changes and knowledge of why things change. And to do that, in theory, I took kids that were did not have control of their arms and legs didn't have language so they couldn't be coached so this is a kid who's uh, you know three or four or five weeks old and i gave them a room with a light on the wall just a little spot of light and then i used an eye tracker to uh, measure where the child was looking i put in a transfer function that allowed if the child looked right the light on the wall would move right if the child looked down the light would move down so i gave the child an environment where it had control over its environment, and all it was doing was moving its eyes. Okay, So that's the, fir the first level of the, of the temporal inference learning theory. The second level is that you change the transfer function, which means you put a little rocket engine on this little light on the wall, and if you want it to move to the right, you have to look to the right, which starts up the engine. Okay, The engine starts moving the light to the right, and it goes faster and faster and faster until it gets halfway to where you want it to be. And then you look to the left, and the little engine on the little light turns around and fires the other way and slows it down. And so you're looking to the left, it goes slower and slower and slower as it approaches the spot where you want it to be. And as soon as it gets there, you look straight ahead. Hopefully, there's zero velocity. So the child is learning the dynamic 
parameters of the physical environment without using something like a baseball to do the calculations. They have to handle the temporal system abstractly. They can't handle it physically. I'll give you an example. Let's assume you're trying to learn to play catch. On the world where you're standing, it's six months for the ball to get to between the catcher and the thrower. Could you learn to play catch? Probably not. There wouldn't be enough iterations in a lifetime. Not only that, part of the measurements are physiological. Your arm remembers how to throw the ball and, and what the muscles did, and, it's a, and that's subconscious. The memory of what your arm did to get the ball to go to the wrong destination, which was one foot to the right over the destination you wanted. In our dynamic learning environment, the arm actually remembers for you but you have enough iterations to modify the throw and then get the, the ball to go over many trials to exactly the right place. What's happening with this infant is you're putting in the general case, not the baseball case, because you know the baseball case doesn't work if you move to a world where it takes six months for the ball to get between the catcher and the thrower. Managing what happens intergenerationally, we have to do it in the abstract for two reasons. One is we don't have enough iterations in our lifetime. We're only going to have one. And the other thing is, is that you can't use experience because the next civilization collapse isn't going to look anything like Rome going under or the Mongol civilization going under or any of the Chinese dynasties. The, the next collapse is going to be worldwide and the world that's left over after the civilization collapses is going to look completely different. It'll be absent Absent of this fossil fuel, it's sort of like a one-time gift. We can't model through. We must do it with forethought. Seth, your, your question is, can we teach a whole generation these new learning tools so that when they grow up, they can think better and they look at their parents and they say, boy, were you intellectual pygmies? Okay, that's first. Five years ago, I stopped working on that and just said that isn't going to happen in time. What we do have to do is what Seth proposes is how do you take people with their existing cognitive abilities and demonstrate that we are on a very bad road to a very bad place uh, with dynamics we don't understand very well, but when, we, when they start unfolding, we won't be able to manage and then use those tools to get them to make decisions about the future which they haven't experienced. Now, that's what I'm doing now. That's what skills currently involved in. I'm sure that if you've read any of my work, you know that I think rapid population decline is absolutely mandatory to get ourselves out of this predicament. We have to find a way to get ourselves down to 50 million people just as fast as we can. And if we're going to do this by democratic process, it means that the majority are going to have to vote for something that most people don't want right now. And that is we have to put up a speed limit against having children. We've done it in the past. We put up a speed limit in front of public schools that said you can't go faster than 25 miles an hour. And the question is, how did we do that? Well, my kids are at that school and I don't want them run over. And I don't care if your car will go 45 miles an hour past the school. I'm putting up this speed limit so that you only go 25 and I'm taking away your right and freedom, but I'm doing it so that all of our kids don't have to worry about being run over. They did understand that. And our society has understood it in, in terms of slavery. We did exactly the same thing. The majority said to the minority, can't have slaves. And they made it stick, sometimes by wars. It hasn't stuck everywhere, but certainly stuck here in the United States. And how do you think we got rid of smoking on airplanes? A majority got up and said, it's not fair for you guys to share your smoke on airplanes. And we made it stick. Women's suffrage, we made it stick. And in this case, we have to get a bunch of parents and grandparents to say, 
because our children are at such risk, we are going to make a uh, speed limit against having too many children. In this case, it may mean having only one child for every 50 women. I mean, right now we're having 2.5 babies per woman in the world, but 2.5, we're ending up with a larger and larger population. But Jack's model says stopping that won't help. You've got to figure out a way to have rapidly decreasing population to avoid the accidents that are potential with overshoot conditions of a factor of 100, a factor of 100. I mean, I'm saying that the earth, if we don't, if we're not ruining our soil, if we're not dependent on fossil fuels, which are going to run out, we can probably at our current lifestyles, which is, uh, we certainly like symphonies and we like to recreate and we like wonderful jobs and we want our kids to have wonderful educations and we want them to uh, not have any social conflict that threatens their physical being. If those are the things we want for our kids, and you run the numbers, and I'm running numbers, and so is you know Obama. His numbers say that we can have eight or nine billion, and my numbers say we can have fifty million. One of us is really wrong, and if he's wrong and I'm right that we can only have fifty million, then he's he doesn't have a complete grasp of the problem. I've heard from some critics of of overpopulation that you know you take the baby boom and there is this huge infrastructure that grew up around that, and now parents haven't been having children fast enough. And so the worry is that there won't be enough of us to support the older generation. And this is a trend that's been occurring in all of these developed nations. What you're saying is that if you look at the whole picture, you stop worrying about just simply having enough people to consume all of these manufactured goods, that the very resources of the planet can't support continued population growth. Well, you've said a number of things. Right. If we're in overshoot by a factor of 100, then discussing whether or not we stop growth is like not even a speed bump. If you successfully stop growth and left yourself in the condition of being in overshoot by a factor of 100, your civilization is going down. The Chinese had a one-child-per-family policy. They have 400 million less Chinese because of that policy. They have the fastest industrial growth rate because of that policy. And they're worried about an aging population, but they're in better shape than they've ever been before in the past. If I'm going to play in their sandbox, that's what I would say. I'm not worried about old age. I'm not worried about having kids pay uh, medical benefits. Here, here's an example. If we're just going to, just playing with numbers. If people were only children and your parents were only children and your grandparents were only children and your great-grandparents were only children. I mean, you know how many parents you had, right? Two. How many grandparents did you have? Four. How many great-grandparents did you have? Eight. Well, if they were all only children, then you're in line for a lot of inheritance. You're born into one house, but by the time you're 30, you have two houses. By the time you're 60, you have four houses. And by the time you're 90, you have eight houses. So the rich, the rich in the community end up being grandparents. The quality of their life, the number of resources allocated per grand, great-grandparent went up by a factor of eight in their lifetime. So declining populate, rapidly decreasing populations don't necessarily mean the flat model of this is who's paid for the Social Security in the past, this is who's paying for the Social Security in the future, because there's going to be fewer young people in the future to support older people. If they're the richest ones, they're fine. They'll be able to pay for their, for their old age. They're in hog heaven, and you'll be in hog heaven because the faster the population drops, the more resources there are per person. 
So does this population control need to come at a political level? Does it need to come after the population has started decreasing due to, to resource scarcity? When does it come in into our you know society? Where does it enter? That's like asking the question, when do, you, when do you pull off the road so that you don't have a terrible accident on the way to grandmother's? Hopefully before you crash. And right now we're so close to crash and the crash is going to be so violent. I mean, ask the billion people who are going to starve to death in the next, in this decade, there's going to be a billion people starving to death. For them, it's not going to come soon enough. My feeling is that two to three more billion people will die in conflicts in the second decade from now. 2010 now, by 2020, we'll lose a billion. By 2030, we'll lose two to three more billion in anarchy. If there's really that much anarchy, I don't, I don't see people who live in suburbia next to big cities. You know, the people downtown are coming out to, your, to clean out your covers, and you're going to ha- have terrible choices to make. Here comes this guy. He's not a bad guy. He's a guy who's provided for his family for years and years and years, and suddenly – all that's left of his family is this little girl, six years old. He, he walks up to your porch. He says, we haven't eaten in three days. Our grocery stores are empty. I have nothing in my bank account. My credit cards won't work anymore. And I want to feed my little girl. And you're looking at yourself saying, you know, my grocery store is empty. And my kids are in the house. And my cupboards have some food in them. And if I let this guy in, I won't be able to feed my kids. And if I send him away, he may go. But if he doesn't want to go, he says, you know, I've been knocking on doors for three days and this is it. I'm coming in whether you let me or not. Then your choice is you're going to have to shoot him or let him shoot you. When they get that tough for people to say, we don't know how we're going to handle old age or we don't know how to handle single child family. There's some cultures that want girl ba- boy babies instead of girl babies. Those are all true things. But in comparison to being in a snowstorm and driving into the post and killing your family, they're pretty much like taking the tongue lashing from your mother from, from arriving at Thanksgiving dinner. And we can't tell the difference. We think that taking the tongue lashing is bigger. Therefore, we're going to put our whole family at risk, our whole civilization at risk. Okay, so the, the very first part of your question was an important part. The important part of your question was, is it a political thing top down or is it a public thing bottom up? It's a public thing bottom up. Okay, I am not going to the Oval Office and trying to sell Jack's model of the physical world to Obama. I don't think he can respond to it. What I am doing is I'm trying to build tools to go to my next door neighbor, who's a grandmother, and say, look, what things can I tell you that will make you believe that your grandchildren are at extreme risk? And the only way to take that risk away is for the world to start having very few children. And the only public, civilized way to do that is for us to vote for a uh, birthing law that limits children. And I have to convince this grandmother that it is more important for her to vote for this new thing than it is to worry about anything else. Now, if you think about it, if I get one grandmother or grandfather a month, okay, and that grandmother is so on board that she'll go out and get one grandmother a month, how long does it take me to get enough people to vote universally across the world for population limitation through Civilized Act. Same, same Civilized Act as the 25 mile speed limit in front of the school or suffrage or slavery or smoking on airplanes. This is a Civilized Act. Majority of the people go for it. They're going to take away personal freedoms and they're going to vote for it. So if I get this mother and she gets a mother, how long will it take me to get half the people in the world involved in this? 
And if you run the numbers every month, 2, 4, 8, 16, 32, to get my 3 billion mothers or grandfathers or people only takes three years. So it's not impossible to do it from the bottom up if I have the right words to say to this grandmother that flip her from saying it's not important for me to worry about limiting population to it's the most important thing that I can do. It's a it's like a viral marketing campaign is is how you're kind of approaching this a grassroots effort using social media using existing models of mass communication that exist right now. Uh, the answer is yes to the first half and no to the second half. Yes, I have to market this idea to this grandmother, just one person. I have to separate her from her fantasies, get her to believe a new reality, and then for her to say, it's a no-brainer. I have to vote for this. It means that when she gets in the voting booth, there's three candidates running for president. There's McCain, there's Obama, and there's this other guy that says he's in favor of rapid population decline. And she says, I'm voting for him. I'm not selling this mass media. I'm only selling this one-on-one. I don't think you can get rid of a person's fantasies using mass media. But, I but most of people's fantasies are created by mass media right now, wouldn't you say? I think you're exactly correct, Seth. But that isn't the mechanism that I think will be powerful enough. Because as soon as I get up, I'm the expert says, we need rapid population decline. I talked to the grandmother. I got her convinced. If I used expert testimony and mass media to flip this woman over, then the next expert on Fox News can get up and say, Jack Alpert's a crazy person. He's being completely irresponsible. He certainly doesn't fit into any of the existing new religions that, that, that came into being in 3,000 years ago, Muslim, Christian, Judaism. It doesn't even fit into any of the older religions, Taoism, Buddhism. So he could say, Jack's a crazy person. He doesn't know what he's talking about. And, the, and this grandmother is stuck trying to decide between Jack and this other guy. You're saying is you have to address the larger problem here. You're saying you have to help people to understand that the inferences that they're going to be making now is going to affect people later. And that you can't just tell them that this is the way it's going to be. Because if you just do that, they're still susceptible other to other people's notions and other people's ideas. You got it. You got it. So my, my model for change is I build tools to flip people with stakes in the future. If you've got a child, you use that child's future well-being as the means of getting this person to, to change their... I mean, you understand that McCain got 60 million votes and Obama got 60 million votes, plus or minus 100,000. There are many, many people. There's 80 million mothers. If mothers voted a single issue, rapid population decline to save my child's future, they could have elected anybody they wanted and any representative and any senator, and we could have a new Supreme Court, short order, based on mother's demands. If they knew what their self-interest was, these grandmothers have to be able to vote their self-interest. And that self-interest has to include an image of what will happen to their child And they have to believe my construction of what will cause their child uh, well-being or discomfort. And that has to be stronger than anybody else's construction. I have to do it in a way that completely satisfies the one person, the one person I'm talking to. The mistakes that mass media has been doing is that they're talking to zillions of people 
and they're trying to hit the middle ground so that they don't they don't insult all of the middle ground. They've left out. They they've talked about mass media targets the middle ground, which means they the current leader cannot say we are going to take away your right to have a child because if he does, he can't stay in power. His ability to stay in power, or McCain's ability to stay in power, is the ability to put together the center group enough votes to get him voted for. I mean, and the, the Republicans have done an incredibly good job of this. They've uh, cornered the gun control market. People that think gun control is a bad idea are voting Republican. The people who are voting uh, for family design and not gay marriage, they've cornered that group. They've uh, cornered uh, the anti-NAFTA group. They're the most brilliant political strategists I've ever seen. They have found these single issues and they have the gun control guy and the NAFTA guy may have nothing in common, but they don't care. Uh, they're voting for gun control and NAFTA guys voting for, you know, abolish NAFTA and the, the right to lifers are, are voting right to life and they don't care about gun control or, or gay marriage. And, and that's, that's our political system. And it can't possibly take on the outlier of civilization going upside down. If Obama or McCain got up and said, there is some risk here about civilization going upside down, and we'll have to face that when we get to it, that's about all he could do. From any person who knows anything about dynamic systems theory, the statement, facing it when when it appears, is like saying, I'm driving in a whiteout, and I'll face the problem of the post when I see it. Well, when you see it, it's too late. Our political system isn't geared up for this problem that I'm proposing we face. And from the cognitive point of view, I'm saying it's really hard for Mr. Obama or any of the people that he has advising him to put much emphasis on inferences that are based on temporal abstractions, which is what I'm saying you have for that group to get out of that. I mean, at what point can Obama stand up and say, look, we lost a billion people through starvation. Three of our major cities have gone completely chaotic. And you can't set foot in L.A. anywhere. L.A. is, you know, 70 miles across. And it's just a part of the world that looks like the border cities where the drug lords are are in control. And he says, look, it, it's going to get worse, not better. You know, I now have to say things that I would have never said before, but I'll say now because uh, we're on the verge of losing the rest of our of our civilization. Extra Environmentalist. Today we're interviewing Jack Alpert from the Stanford Knowledge Integration Lab. So what you're saying is there's going to be this disconnect from reality and what people are seeing on the ground versus what they're going to be hearing from political leaders and, you know, uh, mass media. No, I think mass media will cover the 10 billion starving. What I don't think is that when the 400 million people in India go upside down and New- Mumbai goes up upside down. Uh, I think the mo- one of the interesting things is whether or not real, which has these huge flavellos and these very poor people living surrounding a city that's going to host the Olympics in 2014. If the Olympics are not held there because the city is unsafe, they just call it off, then it'll be a real wake-up call because those, those are the cities that are going to go first. 
Mexico City, Mumbai, Rio, Mombasa, you know, cities where this three to five percent of the people live pretty well and uh, 90 percent of the people live hand to mouth. And when those people don't get to eat, they can't run back into the countryside where they came from. They're just going to have to scavenge and they're going to scavenge from the five or 10 percent that still have something left. I guess we'll we'll start wrapping up here because we've covered a lot of the core issues and really the main point that I would hope that we can take away is really a question around how can we reach all of these people who are locked into this system of mass media and a particular brand of politics. You know, they have a, a 401k and three kids in college and they're expecting the future to look more or less like the the present or the past, only maybe perhaps even getting better. How do you reach those people who have those kinds of belief systems and get this message across? Part of that solution is talking to people like you who will broadcast it. But you have to realize that you're out there in the milieu and you're you're going to be a voice in the wilderness. And a lot of people are going to say, no, that couldn't possibly be the case. The other model that says, if the listener's convinced that we need rapid population decline to, to have a good future for our children, then he has to think about what he will say to the next person to recruit him. That say rapid population decline, little bitty button that, that you know you can put in your collar or tie tack. But what it mounts to is if you ever got into a voting booth and you got to vote for a candidate whose whose major major plank was rapid population decline, it says, I'd vote for him. I think that's a good idea. I think that that actu- that the human experiment on earth needs rapid population decline. And the idea is to get a lot of people to wear these buttons and a lot of people to defend themselves that they're attacked for wearing one because it's not crazy. Anybody who gives a modicum of, of serious, careful thought to what's happening, and there's a plenty of information in the morning newspaper to help you understand what kind of deep trouble we're in, can make the jump. They can make the jump from, we don't have to worry about population or we should worry about women's rights or supplying birth control to people who want birth control, to the civilization has to make a decision about saving its own future by putting up a speed law against having babies. Is there anything else that you'd like to sum up with and put together all of our thoughts that we've had today into a concise little paragraph? I think the most important takeaway idea is that we are greatly overestimating our ability to muddle through this problem. We are really underestimating its size and the speed at which it's coming toward us. We are going to have to be disciplined in our own personal thinking to get clarity because most of the leaders and most of the experts have not fully grasped this more global model of overshoot and they are operating as if we'll somehow find a way to muddle through into the future, which I think is sort of like driving in the snowstorm. Jack Alpert is really easy to find. You can uh, go to my website, skill.org, S-K-I-L dot O-R-G. Notice skill with one L. Lots of things to read. Book-length treatises on signal flow graphs that will help you learn what's going on with learning theory. But also, there's a... The skill notes are sometimes three to 500 words, and they explain little pieces of it. And there's a long list of them if you just go to the notes section, and there are videos. And if anyone is interested from what they see there, 
send me an email. My email is on the front page of the Skill webpage. Send me an email. Say you're interested, and I'll put you on the mailing list. You won't get flooded. I usually send something out about once a week. Well, more like once a month. And I'd love to hear from all of you. Thank you very much. That wraps up our interview with Jack Alpert of the Stanford Knowledge Integration Lab. Anything that really stood out there for you, Seth? (sighs) Jack brings up a lot of great topics. As we talked about in the intro there, population decline, incredible amount of resources that 80% of our population uses, and their education system in the way that people are not able to make the the leap in, in their minds inferences between A equals C and A equals B, that is our mainstream media, the being told things is the norm in our everyday lives. Did you like anything about his interview specifically, Justin? Just really his journey of being an engineer, looking at information, and then trying to get people to adapt and uh, adjust their behavior, respond in what you would think is a rational way to that information really stood out to me. I think it's very easy for people in the science community or the engineering community to say, I think the whole climate change debate is a perfect example. You know, you can point at all this information that's been gathered by all of these people, think that if we go out and educate people on the direness of the situation, all the specific details, that they'll start to change their behaviors and wake up and uh, start acknowledging the problem. Well, that's what's been happening for about uh, definitely 20 years now, and it's really picked up in the last 10 years. And what do we have to show for it? Nothing. Basically, all of our civilization has done nothing to address climate change. You know, I'm exaggerating by saying nothing. There are little changes here and there. But at a large societal level, we've done nothing with our governments and with their economic systems to address climate change. And climate change is just one piece of the issue. And I think sometimes we focus on it too much. The real point is that human interaction with the ecosystem and with environmental resources, we're unwilling to acknowledge the ways in which we are contributing to the problem and ultimately that's going to feed back and affect the way that we live in a very shocking and uh, and rapid manner like Jack was talking about. So I think that's what really stood out to me. In my job I've been learning about SOPs, standard operating procedures and the, the job says that every few years they go back and they review the standard operating procedures. I think they said every two years they go back and re-examine what they've been operating on, what they believe is truth and how that fits into the world and how that fits into their current experiments and stuff like that. In our society, we have not examined our standard operating procedure in decades and decades. It is still the same way. It's still on that same pattern of expansion and growth that it's been for countless centuries. And maybe it's time now to re-examine that SOP and take a step forward and think about ways that our society needs to change and think about the ways that people's mindsets need to change to adapt to the current situation and to the current problems that our population and our culture and our race as a species, you know, as, as humans face. Do we want to be around in 100 years, in, in 200 years, in 1,000 years? 
do we want to think about our grandchildren, our great grandchildren? Our we we have to think further, and we think, need to think bigger, and we need to think larger. We need to think on the scale of the planet. We need to understand that making these changes is not going to be easy, but something that needs to happen. But when thinking so big becomes so uncomfortable, and acknowledging the role that you play as an individual in all of these challenges. It's really daunting. How do you see people beginning to acknowledge that huge, huge challenge ahead of us? I keep thinking back to when I talk to my father, when I bring up these ideas to him. And at first, he was extremely reticent to even even look at them at all, you know, to even let them into his mind. He was extremely reticent and he, he was forceful in saying, no, I don't want that. Keeping at him and keeping at him and keeping at him and bringing up ideas and just, you know, forcing this podcast down his throat in a lot of ways <laughs> has helped him to understand that his ways of thinking, his standard operating procedures that he's been working off for the past, you know, what, 60 years of his life, maybe are not the only ways of doing business and maybe are not the only ways of approaching a lot of these controversial issues and like jack said in his interview you just need that one grandma you start one grandma at a time you give her all the information you convince her and she will go out and she will talk to her grandma friends and then they will talk to their grandma friends and then they'll talk to their grandkids and then everyone will start you know understanding and it'll kind of spread virally and i mean that's ideally how it would how it would go what do you think yeah i i think it's just facilitating that conversation and having very difficult discussions with people about where we are as a species and and where we're headed and that's not something that everyone is always receptive to but it's having the ability to look at a conversation and not always get straight to maybe something like rapid population decline in just your everyday conversation it's like hey how are you doing today on the bus you know just meeting a random person it's like hey you should talk about rapid population decline it's not, it's not like that it's about building that kind of subtle awareness of the impact of like a whole systems perspective and you know just in your little everyday conversations asking things like a a really good example was uh when we had the talk by david montgomery earlier this week the sustainability office at university of british columbia had little bookmarks about sustainability education and so we kind of put them throughout the classroom well the next class came in after the lecture and one of the students came up to me and asked me how much paper do you think was used in printing out all of those bookmarks? And it was a really good question. And I didn't print out the bookmarks. I'm not associated with the sustainability office of, of UBC, so I had no idea. But he had the integrity to come up and ask me that. And that was really cool because he asked me that because I think he thought it was a a little bit hypocritical to advocate sustainability and then print out a bunch of materials. I responded to him that it's just a a very subtle balance between building awareness and using materials to build that awareness. And, you know, that's a tough thing that we all have to grapple with. Luckily on the podcast, we don't even have to use any paper products. It's true, no paper. But we are using tremendous amounts of energy because of all the servers that have to stay up just to support our electronic communication here. So, yeah, we're, we're contributing to resource depletion in our own special way. Maybe we need to think about investing in some solar-powered servers. Perhaps walkie-talkies. Solar-powered walkie-talkies is how we'll record all future interviews. Maybe we can invest in some ham radio gear and just broadcast 
through the ham radio networks. It's interesting you bring that up, though, because now with the communications disruptions that have been happening in Egypt, I saw some people yesterday talking about how the BBC cut out all of its shortwave broadcasting a long time ago and how now people have need for that shortwave broadcasting because if the internet is down and if your television is down and you can't get information, what do you do? Well, you turn back to your shortwave radio. And that's something interesting to consider in the future, how these technologies that our species has been using for a very long time are now starting to be seen as something that's important in the future and useful to us. And so I think that's an interesting adaptation process that we're going to have to go through in recognizing that people from the past did things for a reason. We're going to find that we have some of those same uh, circumstances and reasons for using those same technologies. So, you know, the internet's shiny, Twitter is cool, cell phones are awesome, but there comes a time and a place for those things, and those times and and places may not always be the same times and places that that we face in our particular situations. So I'm sure if you told someone from Egypt like five years ago that they'd need a shortwave radio, they would have been like, eh, maybe, but probably not. But if you told someone from Egypt now that they need a shortwave radio, they're going to be like, yeah, I wish I had a shortwave radio. Um, That's just one particular example. Now, Justin, if somebody wants to get in contact with us via ham radio, do we have a uh, way for them to do that? We actually do not have a frequency. We're going to have to rely on the Internet. Still, you can reach us by sending us an email at podcast at extraenvironmentalist.com. And if your shortwave radio uh, can't find us, you can always uh, leave us a voicemail. And how would they do that, Seth? Uh, people can leave us a voicemail by dialing uh, 1-919-701-XTRA. And that XTRA is translated into 9872. So again, that number is 1-919-701-9872. And we really encourage people to leave us a voicemail however they can. If they need to patch from their ham radio set into the telephone network and dial those numbers, that is perfectly fine. People can also reach us over the Twitter at xenvironmental.com. That is at xenvironmental with an X, not an EX. We would love to have your comments. We would love to have your reactions. Leave us a comment on extraenvironmentalist.com. Tweet it out. Facebook it. Yeah, the most important thing you can do is uh, go on Facebook and like us. And from there, you know, share it on your wall. Share an episode with your friends. I'm sure there's a lot of interesting topics that we touch on, and not all of them are the same issues that you see in the mainstream. You know, share an episode and get that conversation started because a good way to start that conversation is for you and someone else to listen to the same piece of media or or read the same book and then use that as a jumping point into longer form and more in-depth conversations about these kinds of topics. And so hopefully our podcast can serve as a catalyst, as a starting point for those kinds of discussions. If you want to get this podcast out to people who don't have computers, download a bunch of episodes and burn them to a CD and send them to your grandmother or your grandfather or send them to a friend in another country that doesn't have a computer. We are perfect happy with you burning them to CDs. I don't want us to uh, deplete the world's resources of CDs, but if we have to to get the message out, we'll do that. We thank you once again for listening to The Extra Environmentalist and have a really amazing day full of electricity and light.
I got a chance to watch your video, uh, the Elephant Man video, yesterday, and I thought it was fascinating how when when the parent puts their hand out to stop the child from moving in the car, they actually cause more damage than when they let the the child just go hit the dashboard. That was a pretty brilliant analogy. What happened in that accident was that that people thought they were preventing an accident, and they were. They kept their child from running into the dashboard when you step on the brakes and don't have an accident. Your arm is strong enough to hold the child back. If it's a step on the brakes and hold the child back when the car finally runs into the brick wall or the tree, then you can't hold the child back, and he starts flying toward the dashboard. The car slows down. And so by the time the child traverses the space between where you held him back and the dashboard, the instrument panel goes from 30 miles an hour to zero miles an hour. When the head comes flying forward, he's still going 30 miles an hour. He runs into the dashboard and he crushes the dashboard only an inch. If you kept your arm down, the child flies through the air and hits the dashboard because of braking. But when he hits it, the dashboard's going 29 miles an hour. And the child's going 30 miles an hour. He does chip his tooth. He does get a black eye. He does get that little injury, but he's on the dashboard. And when the car hits the tree, the dashboard slows down because of the 12 inches of wrinkled front end. The head gets to stop in 12 inches. And it's a difference between uh, dropping a teacup onto the floor and see it break or dropping a teacup onto a pillow and see it not break. And so what the parents did was they were preventing one accident, which they knew about from experience, but they weren't preventing the other accident, which they didn't have experience with, which was crashing. And that's exactly what we have in the physical world. We are worried about unemployment. We are worried about uh, climate change. We are worried about all kinds of things. But in the process of worrying about those things, we're not worried about the thing that's really going to upset us, which is having our civilization go upside down and not be able to provide food for most of the people that are alive today. 